The past decade has seen a proliferation of movements all over the world, fighting for everything from racial equality to end authoritarianism and corruption, for struggling farmers, for climate change, for net neutrality, and to end sexual harassment. Protest has also become an unavoidable part of our daily digital diet, and it is on the rise, as stories of groups and their struggles have found their way into our living rooms and dining tables. And of course, we've argued about them all with our nearest and dearest. In the Field is a show that's very interested in the question of how social progress takes place and how each of the units of development praxis play their part. And at the heart of this very often lies the NGO that works alongside these movements with the government, for the citizens, and thanks to funders. It's these NGOs that engage with the state, help deliver services, or make people more aware and empowered. But the NGO is constantly evolving, responding in many ways to external forces and demands. And this is an inner conflict that has fueled many, many water cooler conversations and late nights in the field spent drinking beer. As more people take to the street to protest, where does this leave the NGO? And when we talk about civil society, are we leaving anyone out? I'm Samyukta Varma. And I'm Radhika Vishwanathan. And welcome to In the Field, a show about India and development, supported by Rohini Nilekani Philanthropies. We're back after a long summer. Thank you for waiting. The year is 1979. Newspapers are full of stories of brides dying shortly after marriage. The cause? Suicide. Or that's what most of the stories would say. Typical headlines read something like, Bride burnt to death, or housewife found burnt. They weren't long stories, mostly just short lines in local newspapers. But it was their frequency that was alarming. And the fact that it was a pan-Indian phenomenon, these stories seem to appear consistently in news from across the country. Dr. Ranjana Kumari was a student at JNU, Jawaharlal Nehru University, at the time. Well, I come from a family of freedom fighters uh, from Varanasi. Uh, where and she's an idealist. A very, uh, with a Gandhian ideology, really en enveloping the whole The 70s was the decade of activism. The emergency forged a generation, awakened them and politicized them. And many, including Ranjana, were on the streets, often protesting. One day in Delhi, word travels of the horrific death of a woman. So uh, this was a dowry death case in uh, Karol Bagh, where a girl was burnt by... Uh, tied to a court and the family was struggling to register it as a murder. The woman had been tied to her bed and set on fire. I feel very, very sad about what I saw first time encountered. You know, sometimes something really triggers something in you and the whole journey changes uh, from where you want to reach to where you ultimately will reach in life. The feminist movement in India is said to have begun at this time. The victim's parents had called Pramila Dantavate for help. She was an MP and a feminist leader who ran a women's NGO called the Mahila Dakshita Samiti. And she in turn called Ranjana and her friends to the neighborhood. So uh, anyway, we reached there, we had this uh, fight with the police. We, I saw Pramilaji like, a, you know, standing like a rock and wanting to help the family. But then they refused. They said, no, nothing. She has committed suicide. Whereas we could see the ropes falling, you know, under the bed. It couldn't be that somebody tied oneself and killed. 
Stories like these get told over and over again about the early feminist movement in India, the rape of a tribal girl in Nathura, the dowry-related death of Tarvinder Kaur, and many other young women who died far too early. They became the triggers that galvanized the simmering outrage and built the movement. Since independence, the big social movements have directly questioned the way in which we have cared for our society's weakest. This is Harsh Mandar, activist and former IAS officer. If you look around and, and you know, and, and actually stop and think about some of the most significant things that, that have happened to change the lives of India's most dispossessed, marginalized, oppressed people, and, and we start doing a listing, it would be extremely instructive, say, let's look at the rights of workers, uh, the rights of women to equality and safety, uh, the right to information, the right to work, the right to health care, the right to education, the rights of sexual minorities. I could go on. Uh, and it is social movements which, which have, in many diverse ways, fought these battles for uh, for justice, for rights, for a more compassionate, for a more humane, for a more secular, for a more just, a country that is a little closer to the imagination and the pledges of the Constitution. The most successful social movements have followed a loose trajectory that goes from trigger to protest to mobilization, and then to a long period of engagement with the government and society, to the creation of laws, and finally, most importantly, to a shift in social norms. There's an implication here that social movements are fundamentally vanguardist. That there is an enlightened minority that has to garner these large numbers. The masses, there will always be for any idea a zealous core. You know, the zealous core is driven by a specific commitment to a very clearly articulated ideology. But that's not what makes a movement. What makes a movement is the ability of that zealous minority to gather and to garner the support of vast numbers of people. And every step requires a different set of people to carry the movement forward. The activists, the NGOs, the jurists, what journalist Rajni Bakshi refers to as the movement's zealous minority. We talk about them as if there's some kind of a homogeneous uh, kind of entity, but, but there's enormous diversity in how they organize, how they assert their culture, their funding, uh, the language, the grammar, the instruments that they use. The movements also rely on the support of people for survival. They look to the public to share their outrage, it's these citizens who need to be kept aware and informed for their empathy, solidarity and support. And NGOs have often played a big role here, like the MKSS in the case of the RTI, or the many NGOs behind the Narmada movement who helped bolster the core architecture of the movement and made sure that the world knew what was going on. Harsh Mandar began his career as a bureaucrat. He's also been a seasoned activist, and the movement he is now a part of is the Karavai Mohabbat, or the Caravan of Love. It's a movement that is trying to fight hate between us. We were convinced hatred cannot be fought with hatred, uh, just as darkness cannot be fought with darkness. And you have to find a different 
uh, grammar of engaging. And they follow a very simple principle, the principle of solidarity. It's the anti-thoughts and prayers way. To go to their homes, to say you're not alone, uh, to say that we care and that there are people in this country who care, uh, to say that we seek your forgiveness for what you have suffered, to then offer help in, in their battles for justice, and finally to tell the, tell the story to the rest of us. Uh, so it was conceived of as a journey both of solidarity on the one hand and conscience on the other. In the feminist movement, the NGOs helped collect evidence that crucially shaped the laws that now protect women against violence, harassment and rape. They consulted with groups, formed coalitions for advocacy and worked with all kinds of people. And this was how things moved forward. You're going to hear Dr. Ranjana Kumari again, remembering the mood at the time that the National Commission for Women Act was passed in 1990. Finally, we got the commission. It was passed when B.P. Singh was the Prime Minister of India. Uh, Ambilas Paswan was the welfare minister. I remember very clearly Nazma Abdullah as uh, even the Speaker of the House came Ramilas's home and then we all sat on the floor and we all had the dinner because he didn't have a big enough table for so many people to sit. So we were all sitting on the floor and finally we got the, you know, to convince him and we got the law passed. It's not black and white. Clearly it sort of blurs at the boundaries. NGOs that work really closely with movements. We're talking to Ingrid Srinath, the former Secretary General of Civicus, the World Alliance for Citizen Participation, who now heads the Center for Social Impact and Philanthropy at Ashoka University. We're speaking to her because she's worked very closely with both groups. There are um, movements that sometimes turn into NGOs, as in, in order to do what they're doing, they may need to register an organization or organizations. Globally, people talk about a schism in the once close relationship between movements and NGOs. And it started in the late 90s. So, so you're absolutely right in, in, in the way you're reading the history. This goes back in a sense to 2001 and the WTO meeting in Seattle, Washington. An anti-globalization sentiment had set in and many social movements around the world that were fighting neoliberal reforms began to link up their grievances against corporations, oppressive trade agreements, declining labor standards, human rights violations, and environmental devastation. It was the first time really you had these massive clashes uh, between security forces and demonstrators on the streets of a major Western city. When it started, many people hadn't even heard of this fairly obscure organization, the WTO. But the protests had made an impact. And it sort of made everyone, really, government's business, sit up and say, there's something going on here that is much, much bigger than we had imagined it to be. It's not just a bunch of, you know, hippie, tree-hugging, do-gooders kind of thing that we're dealing with. This is an actual organized political force now. And then came the 11th of September, 2001. Soon after, there was a global pushback on civil activism and expression as states sought more control. And this had a kind of ripple effect on development. And so there was a sort of a sanitizing, if you will, of civil society work post 9-11. I mean, it became too difficult to do certain things. Funders simply wouldn't fund certain things. And so there was, in a sense, this shift to what you might call a more technocratic uh, 
model of development. This became the new way of doing, this NGOization of resistance, as Arundhati Roy once called it. It was an approach that addressed society's big challenges by solving them. The, the very nature of our work, uh, the, the need to put things into frameworks, log frames, proposals, line items on budgets, in some ways is antithetical to the, the way a movement operates. Like the MDGs, which brought in a very structured process of intervention and impact, with standardization, strict targets that had to be met, and frameworks for scale. And we also started to see new philanthropic money pouring into the sector, along with the promise of transformational technology. So, you know, we got one laptop for every child, and if we just put a solar panel on the roof of every village home. The Gates Foundation was founded in 2000 and quickly rose to become one of the most powerful sources of support to organizations around the world, and it very much embodied this type of thinking. The years between 2004 and 2009 were very exciting for India's third sector, the NGO sector, civil society. RTI, RTE, NREGA, and RTF were passed, all as a result of long movements working closely with the government. But as tech and financial services started to boom, new donors emphasized results. The modus operandi for NGOs became service delivery, getting the last mile connected. They also incentivized collaboration between the private sector, civil society and government. And all of these put together in some senses led to this, what I'm calling sanitization uh, of development work. This went with the popularity of calculating impact through metrics and evaluations and spreading these positive stories through solutions journalism. Um, and so there's a combination of factors really which subsequently, which essentially leads us to where we are now, which is this kind of schism between what you might call techno the technocratic school of uh, NGOs and then the, the grassroots community-led movement school of change. And sadly, you know, the two have drifted further and further apart in the last decade or so, to the point where there is barely any connection at all. The liberal feminist movement and the Dalit movement have become heavily NGOized. Many of these NGOs have done very good work on gender, on sex work, on homosexuality, on health, on AIDS, and all of this. But as long as their work doesn't actually challenge the economic structures of the neoliberal empire, the money will keep coming. But the break is also because of other factors. The government has been getting stricter about organizations declaring their sources of funding. And philanthropists and funders have veered away from supporting work that directly confronts government policies and holds authorities accountable. Another area of division is the relationship to the government. While the movements tend to see themselves as advocating for policy change and or holding the government accountable for the implementation of policy, uh, philanthropists in the main seem to see government as a partner that you work with to achieve scale. And so there's, there's a real drifting apart uh, of people, each sort of finding comfort in among like-minded people. And the impact of this is now being seen in the extent to which NGOs receive the support of the government. 
While many work as a service delivery arm of the government and benefit from being able to scale their operations, in other areas where they still espouse the spirit of the movement, they no longer have a seat at the table. Take the National Commission for Women, for example. The appointment that we had proposed at that point of time was for National Commission for, for Women through Electoral College, so that autonomous women's uh, organization representatives would be appointed, or anybody, I mean, any, any academic, anybody who's interested in or written about women's cause uh, would be uh, coming forward and appointed. Uh, there were centers open all over the country. Now those centers have become defunct because government is not willing to fund them. So in that sense, you see how, uh, you know, there is an effort to quieten the, or silencing the voices of civil society, uh, controlling institutions, uh, you know, or you can marginalizing institutions so that everything is government. Whatever happens has to be decided by the government. All intermediary agencies have been marginalized and pushed. Now it's time for a story. This is Obelish Bhimapa's story. Nannesru Obelish anta KB Obelish. Nanu Ali in the Bandido, Ilige, Bengalurge. Obelish comes from a Dalit community in Karnataka. Many of his family members have been Safai Karmacharis, sweepers or cleaners. Nanna, Akka, Tengi, Chikapa. His sisters, his uncles, his aunts, everyone. And one by one, they all migrated to Bangalore for this work. And whenever his cousins and uncles would go to work in the city, he would wonder, what did they do? Where did they go? But then they would return smelling quite bad, as if they never bathed. And whenever they came back home, they would often be drunk. They feel happy. Back in his village, as a child, Obelesh would work with his father in upper caste homes. He was too young to understand what that meant. And he just remembers getting food and clothes from them in return. But soon he moved to Tumkur, a small town near Bangalore, for school. And he lived there in a hostel, where he was first exposed to many progressive ideas. And he learned about things like discrimination, untouchability and caste. And he was introduced to the Dalit Sangharsha Samiti movement. And as a young boy, he remembers giving out handbills, listening to people speak about atrocities against minorities in Karnataka, and he learned how to protest. He says things finally came together in his mind when he moved to Bangalore to work in his teens. And one day, he accompanied his brother to work. It was 10 o'clock at night, and they went to a college in Koramangla, a neighborhood in the south of the city. And there he saw his brother cleaning the toilet bathroom at night, 11 p.m., Midnight. One of the Another time he accompanied his uncle early in the morning to the city market. I am telling this the twenty years back story. Some twenty years back story. Twenty years back, city market was not like this. In those days, the market had open toilets, and his uncle would begin cleaning them at three in the morning. 
there are seven open toilets for there are surrounding uh, uh, this market the these people will start around 3:30 3 o'clock 3 4 o'clock uh, to sweeping the extra sweeping the extra putting water and cleaning the surrounding area and all they will take some 55 paise like that uh, each, each cleaner would be paid 50 paise per toilet and every day they would clean as many toilets as would earn them They're, 10 uh, 20 sometimes rupees, even 50 rupees, rupees, rupees. this was a big day. amount for landless so laborers like them obelesh remembers in wonder how his migrant relatives would come back to the village with 100 rupees 200 rupees 300 rupees at the time and he says he was aware that these occupations were unclean but he never told his relatives anything because they worked with dignity to earn money so that is big amount for them so by the evening they are full and then one day soon after he too was put to work cleaning garbage in the mutton and fish market in the city fish and mutton market garbage is a very bad smell you can't stand even one minute there like that smell so two days i worked there as a garbage or shifting worker oh i when i lifting that uh, makri everything will pour on me gaya 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 full smell oh then one and a half day i worked a uh, second day half day i was escaped from there without uh, informing my brother i escaped from there i am a new person in the bangalore new boy i don't have any 10 rupees money i don't have any contact so but because of that dirty job i escaped from there obelesh had escaped alone in the city he spent a few days sleeping outside and then at the railway station and finally somebody recognized him they took him to nimhans the hospital for mental health and neurosciences where he got a job as a servant to a rich patient he would sit by their bed and take care of them after that a pediatric surgeon he befriended funded him to train as an operating theater technician and this began a new life a new career where he worked in some of the best hospitals in bangalore but having faced untouchability and having seen this unclean work in the city he always felt he had to do something and in his free time he continued to work with human rights organizations in 1999 he was on the brink of getting a permanent job in a government hospital when he realized that he had worked with the movements for so long that he couldn't abandon them he decided to leave his job and the financial security it would bring him and devote himself full time to the community i supposed to going to become a confirm employee actually but uh, by the time i have matured by the movements so independently i have took a decision i am not going to work in the hospital i want to work for the community uh, full time even though i don't have any uh, life security like that uh, options suddenly i take a decision i left job i left job i started full time movement uh, as a community activist obelish today is an activist at the heart of the anti manual scavenging movement and he started an ngo tamate so i have learned so many things so then i started uh, i realized that uh, i am came to capable to analyze the situation why uh, what type of advocacy is required nowadays because see in india there are lot of good legislations are there there are lot of good programs are there unfortunately these legislations and programs are not reaching communities because in our india there is no proper community activists people who are 
like a bridge, work with the legislations and community, government and community, programs and community, bureaucrats to community. Like that community activists are very lack. Here in India, lot of leaders are there. But all the struggles happening in the capital cities, district headquarters. So, in my life, my activism, this is the one thing, always I am the grassroots level activist. Oblish works to fight systemic failure, what he sees to be a much larger atrocity than any individual act of manual scavenging. It is the failure of the state to care for his people, this violence of the state that can endure even after a person is dead. See, manual scavenging person who have died while cleaning the manual, Supreme Court judgment is there, he is supposed to get 10 lakh rupees compensation. Still today, where we have done protest with the body, there only the person got 10 lakh rupees. Why you are denying? What is your incentive? Intensive? That is atrocity. My name is Tejas. I was born and raised in Aurangabad, Maharashtra, which is part of the Marathwada region, uh, Aurangabad city. Um, for the last 14 years, I've lived in Bangalore, and now I work um, as a designer at the Azim Premji University. In March 2018, there was a farmer's march from Nashik district in northern Maharashtra to Mumbai city. Farmers walked across two districts to the capital, Mumbai, and they were trying to draw attention to certain demands. Roughly speaking, they wanted legal titles to the land that they were tilling. Uh, realized that um, most of these farmers came from the hilly tribal regions of Nashik district. And because of the way land titling works, they had access to forest land for agriculture, but they did not have rights over the land. The other big demand was that they should be remunerated um, with according to MSP, which is minimum support price. Right? This march was widely covered in the media and on social media as well. We all tracked it in real time as they crossed village after village. There were news dispatches, photos on Facebook and Instagram, and non-stop tweets chronicling the event. So, as is the case with good middle-class, upper-caste, families. We have lots of WhatsApp groups and there is some amount of interaction on Facebook as well. Everyone was talking about it. I remember that I had shared a particular post, not as a not as sharing news, but in response to a, a friend of mine from, from back home uh, who posted a sort of disparaging, like eye-roll, sarcastic uh, post about this particular long march that was being planned, right? So then I posted something saying that, well, um, the farmers are asking for their basic rights and they shouldn't be chastised for this. Uh, what I thought were quite reasonable rights. And so did a lot of political analysts and researchers. Right? So it wasn't my bleeding heart as a bleeding heart liberal who was feeling that way. It was backed by a lot of sound policy to say that this is the least we can do and it's not really anything revolutionary. Um, right on cue, my family conversations on WhatsApp groups began to turn a bit sour. So what kinds of things were you hearing? So the conversations were basically about how farmers um, are ill-informed, they are not uh, flexible, they don't want to change themselves according to the changing market conditions and requirements. Um, they are lazy, which, I mean, come on. 
I think we were all trying to figure out how to have this conversation in a slightly civilized manner, yet also sort of trying to say, you are out of your mind. In Hindi, I say that we have to learn from ourselves. We have to first fight with ourselves and then fight with our own, uh, you know, the conversations we have on our dining tables, with our families, with our friends, with our, in our workplaces, on our WhatsApp groups. So then what happened? After seeing my post, one of my uncles uh, messaged on one of the WhatsApp groups um, saying that I am misguided. Is it because um, I am lefty? And he sent me a video of this uh, particular gentleman in uh, working in Pune in, uh, in Pune district who, uh, who has been able to turn his agricultural practice around and become quite a successful organic horticulturalist. Well, if there's a video... Now, Congrats to him for all his amazing success. But unfortunately, we don't have access to markets, infrastructure, and good climatological conditions in a way that Western Maharashtra seems to be blessed in comparison. So it is always interesting that we never seem to compare apples and apples. We are an impoverished region, unlike our neighbors in Pune. And there is no cognizance of that uh, on some level that, that there will be these fundamental differences that, and that can't be a solution for this. In the doldrums after the Game of Thrones finale, you may have read an article that went viral. It was an odd mix. An article about the most popular TV show of all time, published in Scientific American, and written by a techno-sociologist called Zainab Tufekci. In it, she talks about the difference between sociological storytelling and psychological storytelling. And we couldn't help find that it relates so well to all of the things we're trying to talk about in this episode. Development, politics, communities, movements, change, and human agency. Sociological storytelling is about deep context, understanding how institutions and social environments can help shape us as individuals. And yet we tend to veer towards what Tufekci called psychological storytelling. Today, the individual story has never been more powerful. And the internet and social media all help us to self-mythologize. It's all about the singular force of the individual, their grit, their ambition being all that is needed to overcome historic prejudice or systemic barriers. The celebrity, the individual, drives almost all of our stories today. We have superstar NGO leaders, we have philanthropic saviors, and we even have Bollywood celebrities who are dipping in and doing both. Rajni Bakshi, the journalist, thinks that part of the problem is that there's been a dumbing down of thought over the past 30 years. Across the world, the idea that the reader is in a hurry and uh, the reader or the listener has a short attention span, so you should just cater to that. And overlapping on this is, of course, the birth of the celebrity age, both in the business sector and the entertainment sector, actually even in the development sector. And that the whole of life almost, the whole story making of life has to be told through the celebrity. Today we're in the battle of the narrative. Storytelling has never been more powerful, but the fast blippy mediums of the digital world are not necessarily helping us see straight or see deep. I think today the most urgent and most vital uh, need is for people to be encouraged and I, because I don't know if you can train people to do this but for people to be encouraged to tell multiple stories from multiple dimensions I think our biggest problem 
I mean, see, this is not a completely new problem, but the epidemic feels like it's a new phenomenon. That, uh, firstly, there's a one-dimensional telling of the story and then very limited stories. And in the case of the Farmers' March, the complex mix of policies and climatic conditions that were affecting their livelihoods rarely made it into those damn WhatsApp forwards. And it's very difficult to capture uh, systemic change, one, because it's slow and inconsistent and it's kind of patchy, uh, even though the overall progress might be in a particular direction. Um, also, those stories are just not sexy enough. We've now begun to vilify technology for our desensitization, and this is certainly fair. With the power of platforms and their algorithms, the echo chambers, and the limited audiences of independent media. But we cannot entirely blame technology. The failures of our compassion and our empathy and solidarity and fraternity are not, were not created simply by the virtual world. The fact that we've, we've taught ourselves to see and look away is something that predates uh, the illusions and uh, that the virtual world creates. Protest is on the rise. In the past year alone, we've seen people take to the streets to fight for justice for rape victims, for environmental justice, for police shootings. And these protests have had a range, from the hyperlocal civic issue to the most fundamental question of society. I think the main impact uh, that the digital, digital technologies generally have had on movements is that it speeds up the process of mobilizing. Today, you can get a million people onto the streets in a few minutes if the outrage is sufficient. But as soon as the authorities turn around and say, fine, let's negotiate, those million people have no way of figuring out who will represent them, whether that representation has the authority to negotiate on their behalf, what their precise demands might be, what they might be willing to settle for, etc., etc. Across the world, people are talking about the future of democracy, Many countries report growing mistrust in public institutions, and protests are seen as a symptom of this. We also live in an age where there is immense power to gather people and get them to rally around a cause. And people come, offering to be everything from sympathetic bystanders to impassioned mobilizers. But this solidarity also feels very ephemeral. Uh, so, so that's the loss. You get scale and pace at, at the price of building ways to decision-making structures and, and trust. But there are people working on this problem, finding ways to directly connect people to political causes using technology. We're starting now to see, for example, some amount of crowdfunding for movements. I'm looking at sites like Crowd Newsing, for example, and noting that they're being able to raise money, not huge sums, but substantial sums, for causes that the average crowdfunding network wouldn't go anywhere near. So, you know, most crowdfunding in India is still for personal causes, for a child that needs medical treatment or some such. Um, and yet, on the other hand, there is crowd using, that is raising money, um, raising money for Dalit groups, raising money for persecuted journalists. How many times have you read a report about NGOs with the title that refers to building a bridge? That's because NGOs have always played this critical role and connected themselves to the public at large through campaigns, through activated movements, to the government and to the private sector. Activism does not achieve change without a phase of working through and with institutions. And this is what NGOs have been so good at. 
In a recent Development Studies conference, the African scholar Mahmoud Mamdani said that development studies used to be about critiquing empire, but now it works for it. This idea is seeing a resurgence and isn't something that you can ignore anymore. Many believe that if NGOs don't change their relationships with powerful funders, if they don't challenge the sources of their funds, which in many cases has caused the very problems that they're trying to address, we're not really going to get anywhere. But imagine how challenging this is at a time when they're being squeezed from every side and founders themselves have been nervous and tried to play safe. But transforming civil society as a whole is not just about NGOs. A recurring theme in this episode is that democracy includes, but is not restricted to people casting their votes. Of course, that's a very central part of democracy, but democracy has to be claimed. It is continuously contested, and that's precisely why you need an active, engaged citizenry, one that supports all of these actors and crucially fills the gap, the schism, between them. Underlying everything we've presented in this episode is the need for an active, informed public. And it is in this way that NGOs become more authentic expressions of citizens and their movements. Thanks to Harsh Mandar, Ingrid Srinath, Rajini Bakshi, Dr. Ranjana Kumari, the work of Civic Studios in Mumbai, and our friend Tejas Pandey. In the field is Avaka Production. This episode is hosted and produced by Radhika Vishwanathan and Samyukta Varma. Our sound producer is Santosh Nataraja, and our theme song is by Hollis Coates. Show and art design by Bhushan Raj. This episode was mixed and recorded at Third Eye Studios. You can check out our show notes, transcripts, and more information on inthefieldindia.org or reach out to us on social media. We're at In The Field India. In The Field is supported by Rohini Lakeney Philanthropies. So until next time, goodbye.